section two of a history of our own times volume one by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter one the king is dead long live the queen part two it is not necessary to go into any formal description of the various ceremonials and pageantries which celebrated the accession of the new sovereign the proclamation of the queen her appearance for the first time on the throne in the house of lords when she prorogued parliament in person and even the gorgeous festival of her coronation which took place on june twenty eighth in the following year eighteen thirty eight may be passed over with a mere word of record it is worth mentioning however that at the coronation procession one of the most conspicuous figures was that of marshal soult duke of dalmatia the opponent of moore and wellington in the peninsula the commander of the old guard at lutzen and one of the strong arms of napoleon at waterloo soult had been sent as ambassador extraordinary to represent the french government and people at the coronation of queen victoria and nothing could exceed the enthusiasm with which he was received by the crowds in the streets of london on that day the white-haired soldier was cheered wherever a glimpse of his face or figure could be caught he appeared in the procession in a carriage the frame of which had been used on occasions of state by some of the princes of the house of Condé, and which Soult had had splendidly decorated for the ceremony of the coronation. Even the Austrian ambassador, says an eyewitness, attracted less attention than Soult, although the dress of the Austrian prince Esterhazy, down to his very boot-heels, sparkled with diamonds the comparison savours now of the ridiculous but is remarkably expressive and effective prince esterhazy's name in those days suggested nothing but diamonds his diamonds may be said to glitter through all the light literature of the time when lady mary wortley montague wanted a comparison with which to illustrate excessive splendour and brightness she found it in mr pitt's diamonds prince esterhazy's served the same purpose for the writers of the early years of the present reign it was therefore perhaps no very poor tribute to the stout old moustache of the republic and the empire to say that at a london pageant his war-worn face drew attention away from prince esterhazy's diamonds soult himself felt very warmly the genuine kindness of the reception given to him years after in a debate in the french chamber when m guizot was accused of too much partiality for the english alliance marshal soult declared himself a warm champion of that alliance i fought the english down to toulouse he said when i fired the last cannon in defence of the national independence in the meantime i have been in london and france knows the reception which i had there the english themselves cried vive soult they cried soult forever i had learned to estimate the english on the field of battle i have learned to estimate them in peace and i repeat that i am a warm partisan of the english alliance history is not exclusively made by cabinets and professional diplomatists it is highly probable that the cheers of a london crowd on the day of the queen's coronation did something genuine and substantial to restore the good feeling between this country and france and efface the bitter memory of waterloo it is a fact well worthy of note amid whatever records of court ceremonial and of political change that a few days after the accession of the queen mr montefiore 
was elected sheriff of london the first jew who had ever been chosen for that office and that he received knighthood at the hands of her majesty when she visited the city on the following lord mayor's day he was the first jew whom royalty had honoured in this country since the good old times when royalty was pleased to borrow the jew's money or order instead the extraction of his teeth the expansion of the principle of religious liberty and equality which has been one of the most remarkable characteristics of the reign of queen victoria could hardly have been more becomingly inaugurated than by the compliment which sovereign and city paid to sir moses montefiore the first signature attached to the act of allegiance presented to the queen at kensington palace was that of her eldest surviving uncle ernest duke of cumberland the fact may be taken as an excuse for introducing a few words here to record the severance that then took place between the interests of this country or at least the reigning family of these realms and another state which had for a long time been bound up together in a manner seldom satisfactory to the english people in the whole history of england it will be observed that few things have provoked greater popular dissatisfaction than the connection of a reigning family with the crown or rulership of some foreign state there is an instinctive jealousy on such a point which even when it is unreasonable is not unnatural the sovereign of england had better be sovereign of england and of no foreign state many favourable auspices attended the accession of queen victoria to the throne some at least of these were associated with her sex the country was in general disposed to think that the accession of a woman to the throne would somewhat clarify and purify the atmosphere of the court it had another good effect as well and one of a strictly political nature it severed the connection which had existed for some generations between this country and hanover the connection was only personal the successive kings of england being also by succession sovereigns of hanover the crown of hanover was limited in its descent to the mayo line and it passed on the death of william the fourth to his eldest surviving brother ernest duke of cumberland the change was in almost every way satisfactory to the english people the indirect connection between england and hanover had at no time been a matter of gratification to the public of this country many cooler and more enlightened persons than honest squire western had feud with disfavour and at one time with distrust the division of interests which the ownership of the two crowns seemed almost of necessity to create in our english sovereigns besides it must be owned that the people of this country were not by any means sorry to get rid of the duke of cumberland not many of george the third's sons were popular the duke of cumberland was probably the least popular of all he was believed by many persons to have had something more than an indirect or passive or innocent share in the orange plot discovered and exposed by joseph hume in eighteen thirty five for setting aside the claims of the young princess victoria and putting himself the duke of cumberland on the throne a scheme which its authors pretended to justify by the preposterous assertion that they feared the duke of wellington would otherwise seize the crown for himself his manners were rude overbearing and sometimes even brutal he had personal habits which seemed rather fitted for the days of tiberius 
or for the court of peter the great than for the time and sphere to which he belonged rumour not unnaturally exaggerated his defects and in the mouths of many his name was the symbol of the darkest and fiercest passions and even crimes some of the popular reports with regard to him had their foundation only in the common detestation of his character and dread of his influence but it is certain that he was profligate selfish overbearing and quarrelsome a man with these qualities would usually be described in fiction as at all events bluntly honest and outspoken but the duke of cumberland was deceitful and treacherous he was outspoken in his abuse of those with whom he quarrelled and in his style of anecdote and jocular conversation but in no other sense the duke of wellington whom he hated told mr greville that he once asked george the fourth why the duke of cumberland was so unpopular and the king replied because there never was a father well with his son or husband with his wife or lover with his mistress or friend with his friend that he did not try to make mischief between them the first thing he did on his accession to the throne of hanover was to abrogate the constitution which had been agreed to by the estates of the kingdom and sanctioned by the late william the fourth radicalism said the king writing to an english nobleman has been here all the order of the day and all the lower classes appointed to office are more or less imbued with these laudable principles but i have cut the wings of this democracy he went indeed pretty vigorously to work for he dismissed from their offices seven of the most distinguished professors of the university of Göttingen because they signed a protest against his arbitrary abrogation of the constitution among the men thus pushed from their stools were gervinus the celebrated historian and shakespearean critic at that time professor of history and literature ewald the orientalist and theologian jacob grimm and frederick dahlmann professor of political science gervinus grimm and dahlmann were not merely deprived of their offices but were actually sent into exile the exiles were accompanied across the frontier by an immense concourse of students who gave them a triumphant galite in true student fashion and converted what was meant for degradation and punishment into a procession of honour the offence against all rational principles of civil government in these arbitrary proceedings on the part of the new king was the more flagrant because it could not even be pretended that the professors were interfering with political matters outside their province or that they were issuing manifestos calculated to disturb the public peace the university of Göttingen at that time sent a representative to the estates of the kingdom and the protest to which the seven professors attached their names was addressed to the academical senate and simply declared that they would take no part in the ensuing election because of the suspension of the constitution all this led to somewhat serious disturbances in hanover which it needed the employment of military forces to suppress it was felt in england that the mere departure of the duke of cumberland from this country would have made the severance of the connection with hanover desirable even if it had not been in other ways an advantage to us later times have shown how much we have gained by the separation it would have been exceedingly inconvenient to say the least if the crown worn by a sovereign of england had been hazarded in the war between austria and prussia in eighteen sixty six our reigning family must have seemed to suffer in dignity 
if that crown had been roughly knocked off the head of its wearer who happened to be an english sovereign and it would have been absurd to expect that the english people could engage in a quarrel with which their interests and honour had absolutely nothing to do for the sake of a mere family possession of their ruling house looking back from this distance of time and across a change of political and social manners far greater than the distance of time might seem to explain it appears difficult to understand the passionate emotions which the accession of the young queen seems to have excited on all sides some influential and prominent politicians talked and wrote as if there were really a possibility of the tories attempting a revolution in favour of the hanoverian branch of the royal family as if some such crisis had again come round as that which tried the nation when queen anne died on the other hand there were heard loud and shrill cries that the queen was destined to be conducted by her constitutional advisers into a precipitate pathway leading straight down into popery and anarchy the times insisted that the anticipations of certain irish roman catholics respecting the success of their warfare against church and state under the auspices of these not untried ministers into whose hands the all but infant queen has been compelled by her unhappy condition to deliver herself and her indignant people are to be taken for nothing and as nothing but the chimeras of a band of visionary traitors the times even thought it necessary to point out that for her majesty to turn papist to marry a papist or in any manner follow the footsteps of the coburg family whom these incendiaries describe as papists would involve an immediate forfeiture of the british crown on the other hand some of the radical and more especially irish papers talked in the plainest terms of tory plots to depose or even to assassinate the queen and put the duke of cumberland in her place o'connell the great irish agitator declared in a public speech that if it were necessary he could get five hundred thousand brave irishmen to defend the life the honour and the person of the beloved young lady by whom england's throne is now filled mr henry grattan the son of the famous orator and like his father a protestant declared at a meeting in dublin that if her majesty were once fairly placed in the hands of the tories i would not give an orange peel for her life he even went on to put his rhetorical declaration into a more distinct form if some of the low miscreants of the party got round her majesty and had the mixing of the royal bowl at night i fear she would have a long sleep this language seems almost too absurd for sober record and yet was hardly more absurd than many things said on what may be called the other side a mr bradshaw tory member for canterbury declared at a public meeting in that ancient city that the sheet-anchor of the liberal ministry was the body of irish papists and rapparees whom the priests returned to the house of commons these are the men who represent the bigoted savages hardly more civilized than the natives of new zealand but animated with a fierce undying hatred of england yet on these men are bestowed the countenance and support of the queen of protestant england for alas her majesty is queen only of a faction and is as much of a partisan as the lord chancellor himself at a conservative dinner in lancashire a speaker denounced the queen and her ministers on the same ground so vehemently that the commander-in-chief addressed a remonstrance to some military officers who were among the guests at this excited banquet 
pointing out to them the serious responsibility they incurred by remaining in any assembly when such language was uttered and such sentiments were expressed no one of course would take impassioned and inflated harangues of this kind on either side as a representative of the general feeling sober persons all over the country must have known perfectly well that there was not the slightest fear that the young queen would turn a roman catholic or that her ministry intended to deliver the country up as a prey to rome sober persons everywhere too must have known equally well that there was no longer the slightest cause to feel any alarm about a tory plot to hand over the throne of england to the detested duke of cumberland we only desire in quoting such outrageous declarations to make more clear the condition of the public mind and to show what the state of the political world must have been when such extravagance and such delusions were possible we have done this partly to show what were the trials and difficulties under which her majesty came to the throne and partly for the mere purpose of illustrating the condition of the country and of political education there can be no doubt that all over the country passion and ignorance were at work to make the task of constitutional government peculiarly difficult a vast number of the followers of the tories in country places really believed that the liberals were determined to hurry the sovereign into some policy tending to the degradation of the monarchy if any cool and enlightened reasoner were to argue with them on this point and endeavour to convince them of the folly of ascribing such purposes to a number of english statesmen whose interests position and honour were absolutely bound up with the success and the glory of the state the indignant and unreasoning tories would be able to cite the very words of so great and so sober-minded a statesman as sir robert peel who in his famous speech to the electors of tamworth promised to rescue the constitution from being made the victim of false friends and the country from being trampled under the hoof of a ruthless democracy if on the other hand a sensible person were to try to persuade hot-headed people on the opposite side that it was absurd to suppose the tories really meant any harm to the freedom and the peace of the country and the security of the succession he might be invited with significant expression to read the manifesto issued by lord durham to the electors of sunderland in which that eminent statesman declared that in all circumstances at all hazards be the personal consequences what they may he would ever be found ready when called upon to defend the principles on which the constitution of the country was then settled we know now very well that sir robert peel and lord durham were using the language of innocent metaphor sir robert peel did not really fear much the hoof of the ruthless democracy lord durham did not actually expect to be called upon at any terrible risk to himself to fight the battle of freedom on english soil but when those whose minds had been bewildered and whose passions had been inflamed by the language of the times on the one side and that of o'connell on the other came to read the calmer and yet sufficiently impassioned words of responsible statesmen like sir robert peel and lord durham they might be excused if they found rather a confirmation than a refutation of their arguments and their fears the truth is that the country was in a very excited condition and that it is easy to imagine a succession of events which might at a moment have thrown it into utter confusion at home and abroad things were looking ominous for the new reign 
to begin with the last two reigns had on the whole done much to loosen not only the personal feeling of allegiance but even the general confidence in the virtue of monarchical rule the old plan of personal government had become an anomaly and the system of a genuine constitutional government such as we know had not yet been tried the very manner in which the reform bill had been carried the political stratagem which had been resorted to when further resistance seemed dangerous was not likely to exalt in popular estimate the value of what was then gracefully called constitutional government only a short time before the country had seen catholic emancipation conceded not from a sense of justice on the part of ministers but avowedly because further resistance must lead to civil disturbance there was not much in all this to impress an intelligent and independent people with a sense of the great wisdom of the rulers of the country or of the indispensable advantages of the system which they represented social discontent prevailed almost everywhere economic laws were hardly understood by the country in general class interests were fiercely arrayed against each other the cause of each man's class filled him with a positive fanaticism he was not a mere selfish and grasping partisan but he sincerely believed that each other class was arrayed against his and that the natural duty of self-defence and self-preservation compelled him to stand firmly by his own End of section two